when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of somebody who has an immovable faith. I've struggled, and perhaps many of you have struggled, with reading through the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, you see so many extreme and intense manifestations of God through these servants or these apostles or these disciples that he raised up. And you just read through some of the accounts that Paul gives of himself and he's like, yeah, guys, I, I, got, I got enslaved several times. I got stoned several times. I've been chased out of towns. I've been shipwrecked. I've been all these things. And in my mind, I think to myself, how do I be that guy? Like, what, what is it about the Apostle Paul that makes his faith so immovable against so much opposition, and yet here I am uh, 2,000 years later, and I can't stand somebody saying, oh my gosh, that guy's a Christian. Like, just wrecks my world, right? And Paul's like, don't care about that. Sometimes, have you guys struggled with it? Has anybody else struggled with that? Just thinking through, man, these characters in the Bible, or at least even in this early church period, are so intense. And just kind of think to myself, where do I fit into this? Because I don't seem that intense. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, I think today, what I'm hoping to present is a little bit of a window into the mind of Paul. And into this reality of why his faith is so immovable. And as a church, we'll see, is essentially that Paul's faith is so immovable because he has understood and applied, well, I'll say five fundamentals in his, in his walk. All right, so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And he's just going to give us these, he's just going to paint for us these five different aspects of how, how a Christian goes about living a life that's fueled by an immovable faith. But before we jump into that, I, I just kind of want to set the stage for us. So Colossians was written by, by the Apostle Paul. It's one of the letters that he wrote while he was in prison, and he was writing to the various churches that he was, come on. He was writing to the various churches in, in many parts of Asia that he had in some ways contributed to the planting of, right? So Colossae was one of those churches. And what he does is he is sending this letter out to this church in Colossae, and he offers, he, he states a purpose for why he's writing this letter. And that purpose is actually found in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So if you're there, you're right there. So he says, I say this, in, in meaning that I say all these things that I'm saying right now, and what I'm going to say, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there's two reasons there. It says, for one, I want you to be deluded by these plausible arguments. So in other parts of the letter, we'll see there's, there are literal um, philosophical and uh, intellectual arguments that are being thrown up against the faith of the Colossians. Right, so that's number one. He doesn't want them to be deluded by all of this stuff. And we'll kind of dig into that. 
the second is that he's just wanting to encourage them that he will see that their faith, like his, will just remain immovable in Christ. Right? So those are the two real, that's the purpose statement of why he's writing the letter. So you might be wondering, okay, what are these arguments then? There's a couple of different things. It doesn't say it directly in the text, but we can kind of infer based on some of the arguments he's making that it's a, a couple of things, right? So the first is what we call Gnosticism, which if, uh, if you've been in church circles around, you probably know a little bit of what this is. Gnostics were uh, a group of, it was a philosophical school of thought that pretty much just said, hey, you need to have some kind of special knowledge in order for you to be safe or justified or for you to be a part of the elect people of God, there was kind of this like hidden secret knowledge that you needed to obtain, and that's kind of your ticket in. Uh, that doesn't really sound like faith. So there's there's this kind of mixture of this Gnosticism that branches out into two different categories. Right. So the first category is a heavy influence of pagan mysticism, which that is essentially like these. Uh, these experience chasers. So in their day, they'd be people who would be seeking out all these spiritual and mystical kinds of experiences, almost kind of like a shaman kind of deal. But they would be seeking out all these kinds of mystical experiences and say, hey, you're more righteous or you're more justified, you're all, all these things, or more spiritual when you have these kinds of experiences. So on one hand, you have these spiritualizers who are coming in and they're, they're essentially saying, hey, Col Colossians, you need this. On the other hand, you have this other stream of it, and it all kind of comes together. You have this other stream of the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were essentially Jews who thought, okay, well, yeah, sure, Christ is great and everything like that, but on top of that, don't forget your temple rituals, don't forget, don't forget the Torah, don't forget prescribing to the law, don't forget all these things so that you make sure that you're truly clean and safe, right? So, again, uh, the opposition is in the form of two different branches. You've got the spiritualizers, and then you have the Judaizers. And both of these things are, are going to essentially compete with what Paul is going to say is needed if you are going to remain faithful and immovable in your faith. Right? So, what does he say? Yeah, we'll start in verse 6. He says, Therefore, Based on my intentions, Paul, I want to see your faith immovable. I also want to, like, like you to stay away from this kind of philosophy. Therefore, listen up, Colossians. If you're going to have an immovable faith, this is what you need to do. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And the, the main thrust of this whole passage that we're going to talk about tonight is walk in him. That is the only direct command in the whole passage. And the idea of walking in him, we've kind of covered this before, I'm sure, is not so much just like, hey, I acknowledge Christ, I think about Christ, Christ is a motivation in my life. It's like, no, your, your conduct and your actions and your whole way of life is dictated by Christ. Right, so he's saying, uh, Colossians, walk in him. And... Paul doesn't just say, like, hey, do a bunch of righteous things, but he says walk, and then he always uses that preposition in him, right? Like, what, what's up with Paul? Paul's like, in him, in him, in him. It seems like every other verse, there is just this preposition that keeps on showing up. 
Well, in a parallel verse earlier in the letter, he writes, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So, when he says walk in him, essentially what he's saying is, there's no divorce from understanding who Christ is and how you live your life. Like, walking in him is not a, I intellectually understand Christ and the gospel and all that he's done, and then I actually just go live my life completely separate from that. It's like your whole life is informed by, is informed and fueled by all of what you know of, of Christ. Right? And so, the main thrust, walk in him. There's one thing that we need to do to be immovable in our faith which is to actually just begin to walk in Him. And then there's aspects here, and these are kind of the five fundamentals that I'm going to unpack, right? So, Paul says, okay, walk in Him. If you want to be immovable, here's the first fundamental of how you walk in Him. And the first one is, Christians remain immovable when they are Christ-centered. And this is the first thing he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So the way that the the way that this is phrased is the way that we can kind of think about the passing down of a tradition. So as you received Colossians, as you received it, and we know that from other parts of the letter that Epaphras is actually one of the people who visited Paul when he was in prison and then went back to the Colossian church and then shared, the Christ, or shared Christ in Colossa. And so, essentially what he's saying is, uh, Colossians, you were evangelized to, you heard the gospel, you were given Christ and this way of life in Christ, and so you need to walk in that tradition. You used to have a Jewish tradition, you used to have a pagan mystic tradition, you used to seek all these other things for salvation, but now you have this one way of life called Christ, and that's the tradition that you now walk in. I think we've kind of lost traditions in our society. You know, we think of probably back, I don't know, maybe even 100 years ago, things like family trades. You know, somebody would be a shoemaker. That's why they have the German last name, Schumacher. Yeah. Um, you have uh, things like family heirlooms. Like, like I've... I've my dad gave me this watch. You guys have seen this watch. My, my dad gave me this watch as a high school graduation present, which was um, almost 10 years ago now. I'm getting old. <laughs> and Lord willing, this will continue ticking until at some point maybe I'll give this to my son. I don't know. I'm like, you don't have to wear it. It's probably out of style. It's probably going to get you laughed at. But it's like, Here's a family heirloom. Like, I've worn this, like, everywhere and all around the world, and here you go. Like, something from your dad. Right? Uh, in Proverbs, Solomon's saying, he's passing on all this wisdom to his son. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, forsake, forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and penance for your neck. Take on this way and live well. So, immovable faith begins with retaining the tradition of Christ. It is maintaining the way of Christ in our lives. And what's interesting about the way, again, that Paul phrases this is he literally writes, the Christ, Jesus, the Lord. 
Um, it's like, yeah, here's the way of Christ, but it's also like this person. Like you're taking on this way and this tradition and everything, but it's also the Christ. The, you're taking on the person of Christ as you live your life. And so Colossians, um, if you're going to walk in the way of Jesus Christ, just as they had already received it, that's the way that they're going to be immovable, right? But then you can hear the Colossians saying, but Paul, what about all these people and all these like people that keep on coming to our church and talking about these spiritual things and these higher realities and this hidden knowledge? And what about the Judaizers who are like making us feel so insecure and uncomfortable because in some ways we are still like a part of that and we're coming out of that. But we're having trouble because we want to like cling to our past and cling to all of these traditions that we've had that have made us feel comfortable and and we've grown up with all these things. What about all of that, Paul? And in Paul's response, in chapter one, he essentially just loads his cannons and he just launches away at these different competing philosophies. And I want to just list off what Paul has to say about the way and the person of Christ. So, chapter 1, verse 13. Christ is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He is who is firstborn of all creation. Verse 16. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the one for whom all things were created. 17. He is before all things. He is in whom all things are sustained. He, in 18, he is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. In 27, he is the center of God's mystery hidden through the ages and generations. In verse 19, it is in Christ whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And verse 20, through it was through Christ whom God finally reconciled all things to himself by the blood of his cross, including Colossians, including you. You want to talk visions, you want to talk tradition, you want to talk justification, you want to talk righteousness, you want to talk acceptance by God. It's all in Christ. It's him. So, Judaizers, mystics, take a backseat. There's no other tradition and no other person by which you're going to be saved and by which you're going to be justified and by which you're going to live truly in acceptance of, in God, through. And so the question is, or I guess to bring this up to our day, what it's interesting, Paul's kind of pointing to these two philosophies, and the two kind of point in two different directions in time. For the Judaizers, it's the past, right? So what of your life in the past, maybe, maybe you're not holding on to circumcision, maybe you're not holding on to slaughtering lambs and goats at the temple, but what about it in your past do you, do you personally struggle with that is competing essentially with Christ. Like before you were a Christian, were you somebody who held very tightly to your reputation? Were you held very tightly to your status? 
or your material or financial situation, your position, right? Or were you very tied to, oh, well, I'm hanging out with these kinds of people, or if I'm in these kinds of crowds, or I'm getting excited, like, like, is there still remaining desire to hold on and to rely on to that stuff? Maybe for those who grew up in the church, it's your spirit, past spiritual pedigree, right? Like, oh, well, I've done all of this ministry stuff, and I've just, I've, I've been the, the, um, I've been the youth guy, I've been the, the Bible study leader, I've been the worship pastor, I've been the pastor of NoHo Church. Like, what is it, what, what is it about your past that you might be clinging on to and trusting in more than Christ in this present moment? Right? Or, alternately, what is it about the future that you are looking for? Are you looking for a future job promotion? Are you looking for, I don't know, the, the house? You're looking for the kids? You're looking for the family? You're look, and these are, all, these are all good things. I could say more sinful things, but nonetheless, there's just, there are just things about the future. Today, in our situation with uh, the younger generation, I can say this because we're primarily mostly in this room, all in our generation-ish, um, I see a lot of chasing after what the mystics would be chasing after. And I, I myself will admit, I, I'm, I have been guilty of that in the past, where it's like, I just want to go chase an emotional high and some kind of supernatural experience with God, and that's what I feel like I need to cling to, to to justify myself and make myself feel like I'm good with God. And, and you see a lot, like, I... Oh gosh, don't put this up online, but that's why you see so many churches that are so emotionally driven, and you see so much smoke and mirrors, and all the light shows and everything crazy like that, because they're just trying to pile in a bunch of people who are not really attracted to Christ, but are attracted to some kind of supernatural spiritual experience and high. It's like, I know it's brutal, but like, that's kind of the reality with, with our generation. We're just almost addicted to not feeling bad. So there's that past orientation. Are there things in the past that you're clinging to? And there's a future orientation. Are there things, whether they're spiritual or whether they're earthly or whatever it is, that, you're, that you are looking forward to and you're forgetting in the present moment to just walk in Christ? That's fundamental number one. Fundamental number two and the rest of these, I'll, I'll, I'll be kind of speeding through them a little bit faster. But these are the fundamentals that are very much church-driven or community-driven. And I love that. This is, this is how Paul paints this picture. If you want to have an immovable faith, it doesn't just involve yourself. Because we're American, we think very much, oh, my faith, my devotionals, my, my time with God. And it's like, all right, well, yeah, all those things are necessary and great. But Paul's like... If there's anybody that should be independently spiritually superior, it's going to be him, right? It's going to be Paul, because he's the guy. He's the missionary. He's the apostle. He's going out. He's making all these. He's building all these churches and doing all these things. But even in his own vision of what it means to have an immovable faith, it's like it involves people. It involves church. It involves community. And so fundamental number two starts in verse seven, and it's this idea of being rooted. All right. In verse 7, we read, 
Well, I'll start at 6 again just to remind us. So, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, and then He begins these aspects. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the rooted here has a sense that there's there's a it's just it's com- like it's being completed. You, your your rootedness is being rooted in Christ, and the the pronoun the you is the y'all our favorite pronoun right? Yes. Yes. So y'all. <laughs> I'm gonna move to Texas someday. Watch. Uh, y'all be rooted. Right, and when I think about roots, I like I did a little bit of research because I just I love nature stuff, and so that's just how it goes. So I did some research. There's trees that have roots that go like 20 feet deep, which is that's a considerable depth. And then I read of one case where they found a tree that was rooted like 174 feet deep, which like you stack 30 of me like in Inside Out where you've got like the boyfriend cloning machine and like you stack me and then you just like put me under the ground like that's how that's how deep these roots go right this is kind of the picture that Paul's painting like that's how rooted we ought to be in our faith and so what is one obvious implication of something that's rooted in terms of trees or other kinds of things it's fruitfulness and in the, the par- there's a parallel verse in, in the first chapter that he writes that he says, in parallel with being rooted, you're essentially, what you're doing is you're bearing good fruit, or you're bearing fruit in every good work. And so being rooted implies that you're bearing fruit. So you want to see how rooted you are in Christ, you can tell that, not always, but I'd say in general, if the pattern of your life is filled with fruit, I think that's a pretty good indication of your rootedness in Christ, right? So do you see love, and do you see peace, and joy, and hope, and faith, and good works in your life continuing and continuing? Or are those things absent from your life? Are you, are you running essentially in your faith? Are you walking in your faith in a little bit of a vacuum? Are, are these fruits that God continually reminds us and commands us to live in, are those things absent? Well, that's fundamental number two. So we've got rootedness. We've got, well, first we've got Christ-centeredness. We've got rootedness. And we move to fundamental number three. So if we want to walk and be immovable in our faith, then the third thing we need to do is be built up. And Paul intends for us to be continually being built up. This is not something that is completed, but this is something that we are actively to do as we live our lives today, this day. Right? And the metaphor here is, I think, the same metaphor that he's trying to draw on from Ephesians 2, where he writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the one foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, a y'all. You can't can't build a house with one piece of wood. Um, I mean, I, I guess you could if you wanted to just lay down and put a piece of wood on your face and that'll be your house. And the question that I have to bring here is uh, are you living in this house? Are you living in this structure? First of all, are you even in it? Are you even a part of it? Um, uh, and then secondly, are, are you connected? Are you, are you in as an a integral piece of how the structure of this house, which we call the family of God, which we call the church, people of God, in our little specific church here, uh, operates, are you a part of how that thing is even all held up? And so that implies things like, are, are you serving? Are, are we missing out because you're not employing some kind of spiritual gift of yours that the body could be built up and edified and that, that the house could be upheld, like strengthened and upheld? Or, and the, the second thing is, and the crazy thing is to me is like, why does the Lord even want to dwell in us? Like, have you guys ever thought about that? Like, he's building this house, and we read in earlier in scripture where he's telling David, like, I don't live in houses built by men, you know? Like, I don't live in these earthly temples. And other places in the Psalms, it's like, the earth is your footstool. And yet, Ironically enough, this amoral thing, which is the earth, God says, I don't dwell in that. And yet sinful, like negatively moral creatures, he saves, he pulls them out, he he joins them together, and then he decides to form a structure, which he calls his temple, and then he decides to dwell in that. What? That's, that's mad. Yeah, that's just like, like, if I had to choose a house, I would be in Malibu. I would not be down in the ghetto, right? Like, I would choose the most beautiful or innate, perfect-looking thing. I would not be in the ghetto. But really, God is living in the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And he chooses to do that because he loves us. Mm-hmm. And so a good question here is just, as we are operating as a church together, like, what kind of house are we making for the Lord? And, Mary Beth, you make a great house, and it's so comfortable and welcoming and everything like that. I'm not talking about necessarily the physical part, even though I think God would be pleased with this. <laughs> is pleased with this. But what kind of spiritual house have we made for the Lord here? Is this a place where God is honored? Is this a place where God feels like, yeah, this is a place where my name is exalted? This is a place where people fear me and worship me and love me and serve me, and I can tell because of the way that they treat each other. Okay. So that's fundamental number three. Fundamental number four. If you're going to be immovable in your faith, on top of the things that we've said, you're going to need to be being strengthened continually. And so being strengthened has that sense that essentially you're just going to be increasing in your faith. Right? So specifically, Paul mentions in the faith, 
which is a little different from just faith in general. Faith, trust, hope in Jesus Christ, all these kinds of things. This is actually being strengthened in the faith, which the faith here is actually for uh, referring to, like, doctrine. It's referring to the faith, the body of objective truth that we know and have and hold to be true here in this Bible, not this specific Bible, but in the Bible, in the Word of God, and we're to be increasing and being strengthened in our knowledge and application and rootedness in this. This is a part of what makes our faith immovable. And he says, just as you were taught. So they were taught the right stuff. Um, they had the right faith. But then as these other kinds of competing philosophies come in, Paul, at part of this, this is him saying, hey, forget all of that. Like, forget all that stuff. You have, you've been taught what you need, and it's in the faith. It's in this body of truth that we have. And again, that's y'all. Right? So all together. It's what we're doing right now, literally. We're all growing in our knowledge of the scripture. We're all growing in our understanding of God's word right now. That's a part of what Paul's saying and is, is going to lead us to having an immovable faith. So, that's fundamental number four. And the last point here is fundamental number five. And that comes in the, the last section of this. Paul says, on top of all of those things, walking in him as we received Christ, being rooted and built up in him, being established in the faith, just as you were taught, the last thing he adds on top of all of this is to abound in thanksgiving. All right? Um, we live in a super fast-paced society um, and we've in a lot of ways I think y'all have been conditioned to want the next thing and in some ways our society has done well we innovate we're very pragmatic we get a lot of things done but I think that's kind of seeped into our own individual lives and how we operate I think we just run so fast towards the next goal that it squelches any opportunity for Thanksgiving mm -hmm. And yet, in many places, not only here, but in many places in Scripture, Paul is like, one of the defining marks of a Christian is that they just abound in thanksgiving. And if we can't think or meditate or wait and look at what we have to be thankful for because we're always running to the next thing, I'm not really sure that we can even abound in thanksgiving at all. I'm not sure we even thank God at all. Um, and obviously one of the biggest places that we can do this is prayer and our personal lives and also hopefully with each other as we pray together. But it, uh, I'll, I'll just point out that in a early post-Jewish context, so at the time of Christ, like this wasn't just internal sentiment. A lot of times when we think of Thanksgiving, we actually think of just like, uh, oh, you know, um, that person bought me lunch, like, oh, I'm so thankful to them, or I'm just so, and even in good ways, like, I'm so thankful to God because he's doing so many good things in my life, and there's just such a blessing there. 
in their minds, Thanksgiving wasn't just, hey, I just feel internally good because positive things are happening in my life. Thanksgiving to them was like, hey, let's go get some wine and let's go out and like, like celebrate what God is doing or what God has done, you know, like, let's like express that and let's go out and actually like show people our Thanksgiving. Like, let's be emotive about it, you know, versus what we can often do is just kind of want to have it for ourselves, right? And so I want, I want you to just think about that. Imagine everyone in our church just being described as abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, I think for one, we'd make a really obnoxious church, but I think we'd be awesome because we would be so, like, pumped up about all the good things that God is doing, and people would just be like, wow, I guess those people are just super thankful. I, I, I don't know, like, waking up in the morning is great, but I don't know if that's something to be that thankful about you. Like, you know, like, just imagine if all of us were infectiously thankful like that. And I, I really enjoy one thing that one of these commentators wrote, and, and it just said, even just for yourself, those who bubble over with gratitude for what God has already done are not easy prey to anxiety and doubt. Mm -hmm. So for that reason alone, it's just kind of like, for the, the reason of internal sentiment and internal contentment and peace, thankfulness just has a way of doing that for us. Right? And so I wanna recap real quick these, these five fundamentals, and in doing this, I kinda wanna just paint a picture, all right? So, have your foundation, and Paul is saying, if you're going to be immovable in your faith, Colossians, no ho church. You start with the foundation. You begin to walk in him, but you begin to walk in Jesus Christ, this cornerstone, this foundation stone, this way of life, and this person. And this is the, the ground bedrock of your life, of your faith. And what I want you to do next is I want you to root yourself, y'all, to root yourself into this ground, to be rooted in Christ. And as you gain nutrients from Christ, I want you to then continually be gathering nutrients. I want you to be producing fruit from the nutrients that you're gathering. Right? And then on top of that, what I then want you to do is, as you go above ground, I want you to be built up into this structure, into this temple of God together. And then inside, what I want you to do is be filled and filled and filled with more knowledge of Christ. All right? So that your, your faith may be strengthened. And then once all of that is in place, once the bedrock is set and the rooting has happened and the walls have come up and everything's linked together and you're being strengthened in the faith and it's all being filled with Christ, what I want you to do is like pour out thanksgiving from that structure. I mean, I think we could actually literally pull it off, guys, here. This is the vision of what Paul says a church must do if they want to have an immovable faith. I'm not, um, I'm nowhere near in my 
useful zeal, I would hope that I could be like Paul one day, that I could be as zealous, that I could be as intense and out for Christ as he was in not caring about any opposition and being so uh, dead set on serving Christ. But I recognize that I, I am just a human, a fallen human in need of God's grace. But what I think I and what I think you can be thankful for is that God doesn't give us this vision alone. Mm -hmm. He gives us this way of being, of, of establishing and living in this immovable faith, but it only comes by being a part of this body and doing these things. And so that's my challenge to you tonight. Um, May we be that house. May you be a part of that, an integral part of that building. May you be creating a space where God is being blasted out to the streets and blasted out to all the people in all the earth because of what we have here, having a cornerstone in Christ and being rooted in him and being built up together and being strengthened in our knowledge and abounding in thanksgiving. Alright? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this vision of um, what a beautiful picture it is and how incredible it is to be a part of your body. Um, we're thankful for examples like Paul. We're thankful for uh, his example of what it means to have an immovable faith, and we just admit, God, our, our shortcomings in living a faith like that. Uh, but we know now, God, we see how by your body, and by, the, by your Holy Spirit, by your word, and by your grace, God, we can attain to such a faith. Um, I pray, God, that this would uh, root itself in our church and that we might seek to become a, a church, a group of Christians who really do live with an immovable faith, who walk in Christ like that because of the things that we seek to practice um, here in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.